You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we're revisiting a Skeptic Check episode about science denial from 2018. Now, that was before the coronavirus pandemic, obviously, but it may be even more relevant now than when it originally aired. So, without further ado, take it away, me from three years ago. The people you hear milling about are trying to make sense of an age-old conundrum. How we know what we know, what we accept as scientific evidence, and why there's resistance to that. It's really, really hard to figure out what you're wrong about. And there are a couple of things- It's interesting stuff, and we'll start eavesdropping in a moment. I'm Seth Shostak, welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. In a special episode of our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check, we examine the concept of science denial by transporting you to a recent all-day symposium on that subject organized because we're having trouble agreeing on the facts. The idea that Bill Nye is just going around saying CO2 is up, therefore global warming is dangerous, we should be concerned, it's not. The approach that uh, homeopathic medicine uses in the treatment of cancer is very specialized and very individualized. Such comments have motivated scientists, science historians, members of the public and press to gather in early November 2018 in New York City at Seven World Trade Center, whose 40th floor is home to the New York Academy of Sciences. Molly Bentley was in attendance and she'll share the highlights of the discussions. Hey Molly, how's New York? Hi, Seth. Well, it's chillier than California, but there was a lot of heat generated in the discussions at the symposium. It was held jointly by the New York Academy of Sciences and the Rutgers Global Health Institute. Good morning, everyone. It is my great pleasure to welcome everyone here in person and via live stream to Science Denial, Lessons and Solutions. And as you know, Seth, anti-science beliefs are not new. Right. Just ask Galileo how his support for the Copernican model of a sun-centered solar system went down with the Spanish Inquisition. Exactly. But as one conference organizer said, things feel different these days. Yeah, well, anti-science seems to have gone off the edge, literally. We even covered a flat earth convention recently. That's right. It has gotten extreme. But the organizers of this Science Denial Conference weren't addressing the stranger outliers of science denial, as startling as they can be, but on the issues that bear on global health. My name is Dr. Melanie Brickman-Borchard, and I'm Director of Life Sciences at the New York Academy of Sciences. So we wanted to take that facet and explore it in depth, from looking at things like HIV or climate change, which has an impact on our health, of course, as well, um, to smoking, to all the other areas that this can impact us on a day-to-day basis. Is there a way to categorize the people who are resistant to the facts of science or something that links them all together? I would say there is no way to link people together who do not believe in science because for most people it's not that they categorically reject science. It might be that they believe in climate change but they don't believe in GMOs. You know, there's there's different facets where their own guts are going to say, I believe in this but not that. Conference co-organizer, Harvard medical historian Alan Brandt, said that there's a need to develop smarter approaches. So we're really hopeful that this isn't just a one-off meeting, but this is really getting together a group of people who will think hard and critically and develop strategies that can be implemented to 
really impressively reduce science denial in the interest of human health. Let me offer some examples of current science denial presented here. The fear that vaccines do more harm than good. If climate change is really happening, well, it has nothing to do with man-made carbon dioxide. Homeopathy cures cancer, and industries deny that opioids are addictive or that e-cigarettes contain harmful chemicals. And the issue of science denial matters because all these important issues certainly call for an informed response. Now, this is public health, after all. Hi, my name is Nancy Toms, and I'm a professor of history at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. So the definition of denialism is where you are refusing to accept a theory or a fact for which there is overwhelming scientific evidence. And I think that's a key distinction. There are a lot of areas of science in our everyday life where there is discussion, debate, controversy. You know, should you, does fiber improve in your diet and do fish oil pills make you feel better where you can find lots of different opinions? When you go and look at the scientific evidence that the HIV virus causes AIDS, it's a different order of proof and a different order of credibility. So we tend to use the term denialism for areas of science where there's a strong consensus, and yet you still have people who will deny it. Well, that's a pretty clear definition of science denial. Yes, but ironically, the use of the term science denial was a point of contention right off the bat here at the Science Denial Conference, even with the keynote lecture at the event. I spoke with her about her presentation. I'm Sheila Jasanoff. I'm a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. One of the things that you write about and you speak about is this idea that if we are going to combat science denial, I know you're going to provide a modification to that, um, we need to understand the roots. In other words, this is not the first time we've encountered science denial. It is not something unique to the 21st century. Well, the thing called science denial is not unique to the 21st century. Um, Persisting in calling it science denial, though, is something that may be unique to the here and now. Uh, people have been skeptical about science's findings about all kinds of things from a long time ago. So in this country, one of the earliest examples is the skepticism about the theory of evolution, which no matter how much authority people find behind Darwin's initial claim, and no matter how strong the corroborating evidence becomes from much more modern studies in the life sciences, there still remains a stubborn and not decreasing body of thought in the United States that says that this is not how the human species or speciation came into being. But nobody called that science denialism. They called it creationism. They called it anti-evolution. They named it with very specific things. It's more a product of now, especially in response to climate change, that people want to group all of that together and say that it's science denial. And I understand that you have issue with the term science denial, that you'd prefer we not use that term. Why? So I think that the term is, first of all, politically ill-conceived because it immediately places some people in the position of being the true knowers and other people in the position of denying the truth. So to the extent that science wants to preserve its authority, it has to find a way of talking about it that doesn't depreciate other people by saying you just don't know enough. Now, if some of it is semantic, is there another term that you would use, or how would you describe then this resistance to some of the findings, the conclusions of science? Well, first of all, I myself resist things too, and I resist saying that what people are resisting is the findings of science. I think people, to some degree, are resisting the ways in which certain kinds of science have been done, such that they don't have faith in the credibility of that science, and people are resisting science that acts as if it is free from political factors and political influence when they see very clearly or think they see very clearly, that the science is shot through with politics from the moment of its inception to its political affiliations and what kinds of interests it serves in society. Well, to get to the title of your talk at the Science Denial Conference, it is uh, Denial or Distrust on Not Solving the Wrong Problem. And what do you mean by that? There's a difference between denial, science denial, 
and, and distrust. So I think that if you say science denial is the problem, then you're saying that the problem is a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of public knowledge. And almost inevitably, it flows as a recommendation that we should take the denialists and teach them more science or teach it to them in a way that they really get and that they won't deny it anymore because, of course, the science is solid. But if the problem is that people don't trust the scientists, it's not the fact, but it's who made the fact and by what processes and through what accountabilities, then it becomes a problem of trust, not of knowledge. If what they should be learning about is the trustworthiness of their institutions, then telling them more and more facts about the relationship between the ocean-atmosphere modeling is not going to alleviate their discomfort at the ways in which the work is being done. Who, after all, got appointed to the IPCC? Why are those people there? Who do they pay attention to? At the end of the day, when they land in these huge anonymous meetings all over the world called COPs, you know, what does that even stand for? What behind-the-scenes negotiations are going on there? Who's pulling the strings? We know that we're pretty ignorant even about the way government works in our own countries. But when it's working in this sort of global science governance arena, we know even less. So I think that the problem of trust is about process issues, whereas the problem of truth is about content issues. You can't separate content and context. So there are scientists that are out there that are doing this research and they're getting together and they're coming up with these reports and the public doesn't know who these people are, where they're meeting. So then that brings us to the the big question is, can you give us a, a solution? And perhaps it's to ask the questions that you just outlined there. And if so, where would you ask them? But what's a what's a path forward? Well, paths forward are a little bit difficult to contemplate right now. But I think that one of the things that I've wanted to see happen is for more of our citizens to become aware of how exactly science links up with politics. So people don't understand the close connections between knowledge and power. They don't understand, for instance, how a political system can make sure that people ask scientific questions that are important or conceal the asking of scientific questions that might be important. We have certainly seen dark periods in this nation's history in which people have not chosen to do research that could have been beneficial, whether it's on the social causes of AIDS transmission or on behavioral contributions to phenomena like the opioid crisis or to sexually transmitted disease in general. We have suppressed social science research repeatedly from time to time. So, you know, politics relates to science and scientific knowledge in important ways. Uh, But broadly, I would like an enlightened society to enter what I call the second enlightenment, which is to understand the connections between science and social life in a much more thoroughgoing and sophisticated way. Well, that is an optimistic and high bar, but let's hope that we get there to our second enlightenment. Professor Sheila Jasanoff, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for asking me to be with you. So Dr. Jasanoff's not saying that people are resisting the findings of science. They're resisting the way things are done. And she made an interesting point about credibility with scientists. You know, after World War II, I mean, when I was a kid, scientists could do no wrong. I mean, they were the high priests of incontrovertible truth. If they said it, it was true. So she's saying that, well, the public doesn't know what the scientists are doing, so they don't trust them. But what are the other reasons that there's science denial flourishing today, like, I don't know, mold on an overripe cheese? Well, a lot of this is about the lack of trust in our current social climate. Uh, What was mentioned was the high levels of generalized public anxiety about the state of the world, intense ideological polarization, and something else, which I know gets blamed for all our ills, but the internet, the easy availability of information means that everybody can do their own research, which Dr. Tom says historically has been an American virtue. In a way, you can say Americans created a climate by valuing the democratization of science. I mean, that goes back to very early principles in the United States. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. It was the duty of every good American, at least if they were white and male, 
to appreciate science, to learn how it could improve everyday life. So there was an assumption that you should try to be educated, enlightened around at least practical science. So we have a very strong do-it-yourself element in our cultural DNA. So many today might think we don't need the scientists, but the facts are not everyone is qualified to make you know, sense out of scientific information, despite how they might feel about that. Exactly. And as someone at the conference said, the beauty of the Internet is you can look everything up, and the horror of the Internet is you can look everything up. It's changed the rules of engagement, and it's emboldened some people to consider the very fact that their ideas are going against scientific consensus as evidence of their originality. Rather see it as the indication of their intellectual courage often comparing themselves to Galileo. But of course you should keep in mind that our brains didn't evolve to make sense of the world based on science. We evolved to make decisions based on gut feeling and instinct honed for survival on the dangerous savannas. Well, exactly. And in fact, one of my favorite comments on that theme came from Washington Post reporter Tamar Haspel during her panel discussion. I mean, we look back 400 years and, you know, 97% of the academy thought that bloodletting was the best way to handle fever. And, and you know, we think, all oh, those poor schlubs. <laughs> but, like, 400 years from now, we are the schlubs. And so... Did they it, discuss it, how we're all kind of susceptible to confirmation bias, you know, when something happens that seems to confirm a belief you already have? Yes, exactly. They did talk about that. And one more point, it's one that we all fall prey to, and it's related. Michael Dahlstrom talked about the role of personal narrative. Now, he's the associate director of the Greenlee School of Journalism and Communication at Iowa State University. And he said, we are storytelling animals, not fact-delivering animals. So storytelling is how humans make sense of the world. So it's something that's very innate. It's very easy for us to make these causal connections and to understand what's happening. The problem is that narratives do not always have to be representative. They do not even have to be correct. They can imply causal connections that are not present, and they're always subjective. Can you, can you give us an example? Yes. So here's an example. Let's say you were on a beach, and someone said, oh, it's perfectly safe to go swimming. The chance of a shark attack is 1%. You'd feel, okay, I'm comfortable. Let's go out and swim. But if you got that same information, and then you were introduced to Joe, who was attacked by a shark and lost a limb, now all of a sudden we've got this statistic saying it's safe, but we have a, a story saying, yes, but here's an example where it was not safe. Chances are you're going to go back to the hotel because you perceive that risk because of the story. But it's two different ways of understanding the world. So one is general abstractions. In general, this is true, but then what does that mean at my particular level? And that particular level is the story. So one example would be climate change. So at the broad picture, the science tells us climate change is happening and general abstractions that this is true. But when it comes down to the human level, how does someone interact with that? And so maybe someone has heard a story that their uncle has been a farmer for 40 years and has not noticed any changes. Now that could be completely true, that that individual has not seen any changes. Climate change can also be true, yet they're in conflict. And when you pit the two against each other, very often it's the story that is more persuasive. The individual that has not experienced the larger abstract idea could be led to believe that it's not happening. The larger abstract idea is not true. If it was, I should have experienced it. And then it's not just that individual, but that individual might tell that story to someone else, which might tell the story to someone else, and now you've got this spread of an experience that does not correlate with the science, and people can start to say, well, maybe I'm gonna doubt the science now. So the stories that we tell ourselves will usually be the most compelling, not the most accurate. The big picture so far from this conference is that some very common human foibles encourage us to maintain beliefs that are at odds with science. It's not because the science is unavailable. I mean, the current climate of anxiety, mistrust of authority, and our own hubris in our interpretation of scientific fact, plus our own worldview. I mean, there's a lot in play here. Exactly, there is a lot in play, but there's more systems that are in place that actually conspire to keep anti-science views flourishing. Okay, we're going to hear about those next when we continue with a report from the New York Conference. This is a special episode of our monthly skeptic check on big picture science, Science Denial.
With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about the factors that contribute to science denial in this episode of Big Picture Science, factors that were discussed in a conference held in November 2018 called Science Denial, Lessons and Solutions, organized jointly by the New York Academy of Science and Rutgers Global Health Institute. And Molly was there. Well, we've been talking so far about the role of, you could say, personal foibles and how they influence how we accept scientific evidence. But the attendees here identified other contributors to science denial, powerful systems in place that make thinking about science issues even more challenging. The first is the darkest. It is the strategic resistance by groups that have a self-interest or an economic reason to deny what science has to say. The medical specialist stated, it is my opinion that subjects examined by me were not adversely affected by smoking the cigarettes provided. Remember this report and by Chesterfield. Hey, I remember those commercials. The idea that smoking was even good for you. They would improve your health. Hard to believe, but cigarette commercials have been banned now for 50 years. Harvard medical historian Alan Brandt reviewed tobacco industry documents for his book, Cigarette Century, and he reminded us here at this conference that the strategy of manufacturing doubt about the detrimental health effects of cigarettes was adopted by the fossil fuel companies when they needed to manufacture doubt about the evidence of climate change. In some ways, I think the history of science denial really starts with the tobacco industry. And when a lot of scientific data came out showing that smoking was linked to lung cancer, the industry had to figure out a way to respond. And the way they responded was trying to encourage doubt, uncertainty, and ignorance about the product, as opposed to acknowledging the scientifically demonstrated harms of using cigarettes. So the tobacco industry really invented a strategy that many other industries and firms that have an interest in denying science would later follow. Now, as we listen to you explain the strategy of how the companies did this, uh, what issues should we keep in mind today that are unfolding where some of the same strategies are in the process of being applied? Climate change would be an excellent example. Sugary beverages would be another major example. E-cigarette use today among teenagers, we don't really know how harmful it is, so we're going to help figure this out. Yes, there are many of these strategies are in the process of being applied now. And they start with things like saying, we know that some studies have come out, but they have certain problems. And what we need is more research, not less research. No one's more committed to the health and well-being of people in the United States around the globe than our company. That was the first thing that the tobacco industry said when they got the news, the scientific findings, that their product was really harmful. So that would be the first thing. And there are others related to that which include intensive political lobbying, where then our elected representatives say, well, you know, we don't really know, so we can't regulate that particular risk. There are a lot of scientific fronts, so people will say, well, I'm from the organization to investigate climate change, and our findings are uncertain about whether this is a significant risk to human populations, and these are paid for 
by big industry, but they have the appearance of being independent and important. So they really exploited this notion of constructing uncertainty using science and using scientists that were funded by the industry. And this is an elemental aspect of what today we call the tobacco industry playbook. That idea of manufacturing doubt in the case of climate change, you're saying is a page right out of the playbook of Big Tobacco. And why is it so effective, seeding the public mind with that little bit of doubt? Well, these are often things that are of concern and anxiety. So doubt becomes a very valuable strategy for an industry. So studies come out and actually very much like climate change, there was a good deal, a very significant consensus that smoking caused lung cancer. So there are sort of two questions, you know, can you erode that scientific consensus? Well, you know, there are more than one side to this. There are scientists who don't agree with those findings completely. We need more research. And then in the case of tobacco smoking, much as it is in climate regulation and concerns about climate change, people say, well, you know, I think there's a debate about that. But in the face of a debate as opposed to scientific knowledge, people are much less willing to, for example, change their own behavior. They, you know, people say, well, you should stop smoking. Well, you know, there's kind of a debate about whether it's really harmful or not. And I haven't experienced any bad effect. And those are things that were just horrible for smokers, then what else did the industry do? They said, well, you know, we're going to put filters on cigarettes. And if there is something, they wouldn't admit that there was, but if there is something in cigarettes, our filters will take them out. And the industry knew that filters were ineffective for reducing carcinogens. But the production of filtered cigarettes, again, reassured smokers. So this is a form of reassurance through denial. Climate change isn't as bad as, you know, the naysayers say it is. Tobacco is not really as harmful as some of the public health people say it is. So planting doubt is crucial. And psychologically, it works well if you want to continue that behavior. I've lost many people to smoking in my family, including my mother. She enjoyed smoking. So Any public message that suggested it was okay to smoke is something that some smokers are going to hold on to, aren't they? I think it's very powerful, especially in the instance of an individual behavior like smoking that is so highly addictive and so incredibly harmful. So smokers need a form of saying, I'm really not harming myself the way some people say it, you know, and they they needed a way to rationalize their use of a highly addictive and dangerous product, and the companies kept providing one. And this is really my concern. You know, right now we're being asked to make big investments in protecting our climate and reducing carbon emissions, but if the companies say, well, you know, we really can't be sure, and maybe this isn't going to be as bad as people say, and you know, there's some evidence, but it's equivocal, there are scientists who disagree, then we fail to make, in this instance, some of the resource and political and really personal commitments to reducing climate change, much in the same way. So what does doubt do? Doubt undoes our ability to um, protect ourselves from harm and for our political processes to protect us from harm. That was really true in the case of cigarette smoking. The Congress did next to nothing for really 20, 30 years to protect the American public from smoking because in addition to the doubt, they then used this sort of information of doubt and their communication systems to lobby Congress really intensively, and then Congress people would get up and say, well, you know, we don't really know. But as you said, it wasn't just the companies that were saying there may not be a link between smoking and disease. They had industry-funded research. So that's very difficult for the public to parse. 
The research says that there's no link. The public may not realize who has funded that research. And you could forgive a rationally thinking person for saying, well, it looks like the studies are equivocal. That's exactly right. And, you know, everything gets compromised. Our political processes get compromised by the insertion, the deliberate insertion of doubt. Our media gets compromised as well. So the media wants to be scrupulously fair and has a history of wanting to present balanced arguments. And so the, typically with cigarettes, they would go to somebody who said, you know, smoking causes lung cancer. And they would say, we also spoke to somebody who, a scientist who is doubtful. Now, they were often paid by the industry or supported by the industry. But as you suggest, in early media, that was rarely revealed. And I would say even now, the insertion of messages of doubt about climate change is characteristic. So, for example, just two months ago, the Wall Street Journal runs a op-ed piece on doubts about climate change. It turns out that the author has a long history of support from big energy and from, you know, the climate science denial system, but it's not revealed and it's not acknowledged or disclosed in the Wall Street Journal. So I'm part of a group that's trying to very closely monitor how these interests are expressed, whether the media is covering these kinds of topics appropriately. But the idea of like, well, let's take a balanced view on climate change is to play into the hands of science denial. Alan Brandt, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks a lot, Molly. Again, Alan Brandt is a medical historian at Harvard University. So uh, that's why it's important to see who's funding the research. It could be an industry with a dog in the fight, namely its profit. Right, that's exactly right. But it is also true that people are very quick to cast industry in the role of villain, especially when they're opposing things such as GMOs or vaccines. So you'll hear the line of argument, I don't trust anything the industry says. Yeah, it certainly happens in science fiction, you know, the evil company. Like in the movie RoboCop, where there was this company Omni Consumer Products that made the robots. And it didn't seem to bother the company that the robots would occasionally kill people. Well, they should have been called ominous consumer products. Well, here at a conference packed with scientists and historians, David Shear provided a different view. A co-organizer of the conference, he is a member of industry, and he says he depends on good science. Shear and company provides venture capital to pharmaceutical companies that make antivirals and drugs for heart disease. And I think that to some extent, as the rest of society is, pharmaceuticals is not a monolithic entity. In fact, you have those companies that subscribe to doing the right thing and those that don't do as much in that arena. But at the end of the day, you don't succeed if you don't do the right thing, particularly in terms of pharmaceuticals for patients. And the point that you made is that science has a very important role in industry. It's the foundation. Science is really the foundation of what we do. And we depend upon the robustness of the scientific platforms that we hope to build upon and translate from. We want to really sort of be operating in, in the most robust fashion. Evidence-based decision-making in terms of what we advance, what we do, what drugs we put in the clinic, how we report the information, and ultimately the way in which we would want to commercialize. Well, blaming Big Pharma, for example, I mean, that's certainly easy. And it's comforting to have someone to blame, but it's just too simple. I mean, you certainly don't blame them for the antibiotics that just saved your life. We have a second framing device that plays a role in science denial, and that is how the media presents the science in their effort to present balanced arguments, for example. Right. If you present the opposite point of view, when there is, in fact, science consensus, well, you create what's called a false equivalency. Right. So you go and interview the one guy that doesn't agree with the scientific consensus and put him up on television or in your newspaper article, and then you call it balance. And some media outlets seize on that to exploit their love and the public's love of controversy. 
and then transferring those jobs to China and India, how is that going to save the planet? You should be ashamed of reading such propaganda lines or not even thinking That's this not through. propaganda. This, Jeff, let me, but, all right, hold, hold on, on hold on, hold you on, hold on for a second, you, hold you, on. Wait, wait. Well, there's one more framing issue that was mentioned that is nearly insurmountable when it comes to evaluating scientific evidence, and that is this climate of us versus them. Matthew Nesbitt is a professor of communication and public policy at Northeastern University, and he says that the term science denial is more than just off-putting. It's a fighting term. And if our goal is to reach people who might have doubts about science, the best way to close off a conversation and the ability to connect with someone is to call them a denier. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other problems with calling people a denier. It leads to kind of this circular sort of never-ending conversation about where the term denier can be expanded into a bunch of whole different things. In climate change, for example, people who disagree on policy or technology related to climate change are now being called delayers or disinformers or confusionists. James Hansen, or one of our leading climate scientists who advocates for nuclear energy as a clean source of energy, uh, he's been referred to as engaging in a new form of denial, you know, denying that 100% renewables is all that we need. So it, it immediately works us into this never-ending cycle of us versus them, creating tribes within tribes. Though it gets people's attention and it activates emotions, what we need instead of negative emotion is we need opportunities for connection and dialogue, and that cuts us off from it. And there's more. Pursuing this line can backfire by creating anti-science positions where none previously existed. So if you then mount a campaign where you're labeling Republicans as the party of denial and constantly labeling them climate deniers, you make that cue for Republicans that much more salient and available to them. That people like me, right, you know, we dismiss climate change, we don't care about it. Whereas the political other, Democrats and activists, they're calling me a denier and it's their issue, not mine. Right? So even though they might believe in climate change or might be inclined to believe in climate change, they might not voice their opinion because they're fearful that other people like them, the many climate deniers among their ranks, are going to impose some type of social or political cost that will be castigated from their tribe. And Seth, we heard the term tribalism a lot over the course of the day and how powerfully we all identify with our tribes. And as one social scientist here said, if your social identity is derived from your political affiliation, asking people to move away from it, even in the name of science, is asking a lot. Well, from all you said, Molly, it seems that the average person trying to make sense of research is up against a tsunami of forces that lie about, misrepresent, or frame the evidence in such a way that it's really difficult to evaluate the evidence on its own merits. Exactly, but there is hope. The Science Denial Conference was also charged with coming up with solutions to navigating this fraught landscape. We'll hear those ideas next. This much we know for sure. You're listening to Skeptic Check Science Denial on Big Picture Science. We're talking about science denial. In this episode of Big Picture Science, drawing on insights shared at a conference on the subject at the New York Academy of Sciences. And Molly was there. And now we come to talking about solutions. What was proposed, Molly? Well, when we got around to the topic of solutions, we were reminded that there is a certain percentage of people whose minds you're never going to change. As you well know, Seth, something like 30% of Americans have disbelief in many of the very well-established claims of science, and that number never budges. Yeah, well, one that's certainly close to home. A third of the public continues to believe that some UFOs are alien spacecraft. But we've also heard that most people are not simply anti-science. Right. And so the task is to influence those people who have open minds. And, and look, no one is saying that any of this is easy. It takes effort. But if any of us can spend 20 minutes researching, I don't know, the best place in town to get a burrito, we know we have stamina to do a little bit of research. And personally, I like the no-nonsense advice that David Shear gave when he was asked the question of how the public should think about difficult scientific issues. He said, think like a venture capitalist. I think it's important to listen to both those who are supporters of a position and those who are maybe opponents. 
sometimes, though, it's difficult for members of the public to be able to critically evaluate some of the scientific issues that are in play. Part of what one does in venture capital and what one does in company building, as I've done in my career, is you always look at who is offering the expertise. What is their track record? What have they been able to accomplish, whether it be in science or in business, whatever? And do they have credibility? Do they have integrity? And that's why it was said in the, in the conference today that you want to go to the best people you can, those who not only are supportive of some idea, but those who might be sort of offering the contrary point of view. Keeping in mind financial and ideological conflicts of interest. Right. But here's a specific example that was given about how to make conversations about science more accessible. And that had to do with conversations with parents about vaccinating their children. Statistically, the belief that vaccines are not safe for children is held only by a small minority. Health experts said that the trend is good. Child vaccination rates continue to go up. However, while few parents are anti-vaccine, many parents have questions about vaccines. Pediatrician Amanda Dempsey made the point that when those questions are ignored, they're not taken seriously, those parents are candidates to become science denialists. We found that there's a lot of parents who, while they do vaccinate, they have some views that suggest that that might not always be the case for them. And in the future, they might become one of those parents who decide not to vaccinate. So it's important for scientists to answer those questions and not just say, well, vaccines have been proven safe. And, you know, speaking of scientists, all those scientists attending the conference, Molly, was there a reluctance on their part to consider that they might be part of the problem of science denial? Well, you think there might be, but there wasn't at all. For example, the head of the Division of Medical Ethics at the NYU School of Medicine, Arthur Kaplan, was frustrated with his fellow genetic researchers for not speaking out when the science of genetics is publicly misused. Dr. Kaplan, uh, you said in the uh, symposium today that we do a horrible job of correcting misinformation about genetics. Who is the we in that statement? So I think we do a horrible job in correcting misapprehension, racism, false theories about heredity, and the we is the scientific community of geneticists. They're hiding in the ivory tower, sometimes afraid to engage, sometimes feeling they're not very good at it sometimes, and I think primarily because they don't get rewarded for it. If you get out there and have this engagement with the public, your peers are sometimes going to say, what are you doing that for? You are referring to the discussion in the public sphere when this information or discussion about genetics reaches the media, reaches public forums. There's misinformation out there, and you're saying that the, the scientists aren't stepping up to correct it. What would that correction look like? So... Elizabeth Warren says, I'm Native American and I have a genetic test to prove it. Where's the American Society of Human Genetics, Society of Genetic Counselors, either in the U.S. or anywhere around the world, saying, look, nobody is a member of a Native American group or tribe because they have an ancestor seven generations back. Those groups don't even represent contemporary or recent understandings of what a tribal identity is. Those groups should be out there writing op-eds, should be calling up Elizabeth Warren's office and saying that's ridiculous, should be calling journalists locally, should be showing up at the high school saying that's not how we understand ancestry or race. And the other example you use is the misunderstanding and the warped use of uh, lactose intolerance. So there is this notion among white nationalists that you can decide or determine, excuse me, who's really a white person or Nordic if they don't have lactose intolerance, they have this theory that whites had to survive on dairy products as they move north. Anyway, it's all nonsense. There's plenty of lactose intolerance among white people. It's also the case that uh, their theory about how diet worked and who drank milk is crazy. There are plenty of Africans that drink milk as part of their culture and diet. No one's debunking it. When you hear that sort of stuff, it's like time for the letter to the editor or somebody wants to call up the local news station. You know, not everything has to be the New York Times and say, if you ever heard this, it's stupid and you should, as part of your reporting, point it out. What you're suggesting is that scientists do have a role in the spread of science denial when they refuse to act. I think scientists have an obligation to correct false science, particularly when it's driving immigration policy in the U.S., when it's fueling white hatred and supremacy around the world, not just in this country, but in many parts of the world, 
when there are people writing restrictive immigration laws that are based on phony science, there are people bringing disease here, or they're somehow going to infect us with uh, defective genes and this sort of thing. Scientists should be speaking up, jumping in, getting involved. So you're adding a lot to the scientific job requirement. Yeah, it's a burden for scientists to have to do it. It's also not so great when ultimately it turns out that your next door neighbor gets deported because of some false genetic view. So it has real world consequences. Big time real world consequences, high stakes. Genetics matters. We're a country, the U.S., that has never quite figured out how to deal with race. Race is defined in this country frequently by genetic factors only. There are people selling commercial genetic testing. The whole world of medicine is shifting toward being genetically based. The genetics community has got to step up to that reality. Arthur Kaplan, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Again, Arthur Kaplan from the NYU School of Medicine. So he was urging that scientists do more than merely bemoan the problem of science denialism, but get involved in dealing with it. In fact, they contribute to it when they don't get involved. This is what he was saying. And that leads us to another strategy for combating science denial. And this is the use of converts, people whose minds have been changed and educated about a scientific topic, who then go back to their group to educate the group. Historian Nancy Tom said, we should focus on that rather than trying to do something like change the media, because that isn't going to happen. I see the future more in targeted interchanges, and I think science journalism is an incredible asset in that, where you try to go to people where they are at the point where they're making a critical decision and help them think through that decision, trying to focus on the places where people might be receptive. I wonder if you could say more of the example that you gave, which was um, with evangelicals and climate change. So here you have a trusted group, which is a church community, um, and that this is where some change toward the science of climate change might take place within a trusted community. To me, one of the most interesting developments over the last couple of years is watching a big segment of the evangelical community break with the more authoritative ranks of evangelicals who deny climate change or or who say, well, God will take care of us. We can continue to do what we're doing, and it's okay, and are actively creating a network to try to reach out to their fellow evangelicals. Hearing that message from fellow believers gets through in a way that if a secular scientist or a science journalist comes along with that same message, you don't have that same level of acceptance and trust. So I think trying to embed our message in communities and finding trusted leaders within that community is a really smart way to go. It's not unlike what they did in HIV AIDS where finding grassroots community leaders made all the difference in terms of translating public health methods. So we're coming from largely white, affluent public health scientists, take it to community leaders who could put it in terms and were more trusted, frankly, by their neighbors than were these public health officials just kind of flying in. Well, clearly you're more likely to accept an argument presented by a peer that you already trust. And perhaps one of the most riveting talks that caught everyone by surprise was from Jerry Taylor, a former member of the conservative Cato Institute and a former self-described climate change denier, whose job was to refute the scientific arguments for climate change and whose mind was changed, he said, when he ran out of responses to the scientific evidence. He talked about the value of being a former Republican who could talk to other Republicans because he understood where they were coming from. And what we found when we're on Capitol Hill with Republican legislators, senior staff, and the the rest, is that if if there's a trusted messenger, I mean, it's not a guy from Greenpeace coming there, it's me. And I said, look, I used to be right where you are. 23 years, I wrote most of your talking points. I completely understand why you're skeptical. But let me tell you why I changed my mind. So that's the value of hearing a reasoned argument from an insider. Apparently it works better than yelling at people and telling them why they're wrong, as tempting as that might be. (laughs) Well, exactly. The loss of civility only makes divisions more entrenched. And here's some final thoughts, one that adds even more complexity to this whole idea of finding strategies to combat science denial. It comes from Michael Dahlstrom. So this, I think, is a big question that surrounds science denialism, and it's one I don't have an answer, so I'm just going to expand on the question. 
what is the goal for combating science denial? On one hand, some people seem to want us to have complete deference to science, that science will tell us what is true and we should believe it. But on the other hand, we also claim that we want people to be skeptical of information sources, skeptical of authority, and be critical thinkers, which would mean sometimes it is appropriate to push back against science. And that's also a goal. So what is it that we want to achieve regarding science denial? I guess it's somewhere in the middle, but depending on who you talk to, might lean one way or the other. Michael Dahlstrom makes an excellent point. You want people to be skeptical. On the other hand, you want them to also value the conclusions of science. Well, now I'll leave you with this. This final thought came from a journalist at the conference who said to remember that when you tune into a news source and you hear an argument from what you consider to be the other side, talking about science in a way that is cherry-picking scientific data, usually what's being said is not a lie. It's not that the information is false, it's that it's incomplete. And that is a good way of summarizing the message at the Science Denial Conference. With the exception of, you know, some salient historical examples, a lot of the discussion about science falls short, not because the information is fabricated or unavailable, but because for the many reasons we heard today, the big picture is incomplete. Thanks for your coverage, Molly. See you back in California soon. You're welcome, Seth. And thanks to those whose talents we don't deny who help produce this program. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, production assistant Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. And a special thanks to the New York Academy of Sciences and Rutgers Global Health Institute for being so accommodating at the Science Denial Conference. And particular thanks to engineer Chris Ball who provided us with audio from the event. We're also grateful for financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit science and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check, Science Denial. You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know we're also a podcast? Subscribe to the BiPiSci podcast and you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.